Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Welcome to today's Beeson Podcast. My guest today on the podcast is a special friend, Bishop Robert Baker, who serves as the Bishop of the Diocese of Birmingham in Alabama. He was appointed to this post by Pope Benedict XVI back in 2007 and has served in a wonderful way as a Christian leader in our community. Before coming to Birmingham, he was the Bishop of Charleston, South Carolina, and we've been able to do a number of things together, Beeson Divinity School and the Diocese of Birmingham and Alabama, uh, through our personal relationship with the bishop. Thank you, Bishop, for being with us today. Thank you, Dr. George. And I just want to commend and thank you for your leadership in the relationship with uh, the Catholic community. I know you have served uh, in the broader area with uh, the Catholic uh, Baptist Dialogue. Um, Bishop Saratelli, a dear friend of mine who uh, I studied with in Rome uh, mm. 40 years ago, uh, serves in that capacity and uh, has high regard for you as I do. I thank you as well for these years. I've been here 12 as bishop, uh, almost 12 years of Birmingham, and uh, you much longer, but uh, you have led the way in our dialogue and conversation, a Catholic Baptist, and those areas where we could, we did uh, move ahead on uh, trying to uh, help our members of our religious communities understand better uh, one another. So I thank yeah. you for that that leadership. Thank you, Bishop. I want to talk about some of our joint ventures uh, as we think about um, both of us coming to a, a close in the present office that we have at about the same time. Uh, so it's a little bit bittersweet that we won't be able to collaborate in exactly the same way, but I think some good fruit will come from, from what we've done. Uh, so what's your own background, and how, how did you come to the, the priesthood and then maybe to, to be a bishop? Dr. George, I'm a northern boy. I was born in, in Ohio, 1944, June the 4th. My father's family was uh, pretty much all Irish. Uh, my mother's German. And so I carry a little bit uh, both uh, cultures. I went off uh, as a, a youngster early into a seminary. My uncle, I had an uncle, a priest, and a great uncle. They were members of a religious order that uh, was trying to get me in their community. And I, I opted uh, toward the diocesan clergy. Uh, and I have to say it was a kind of a self-centered reason. My mother said, if you join a religious community, you cannot own a car. <laughs> it was that kind of selfish, materialistic spirit that led me into the diocesan priesthood. And then I found out I always drove clunkers and they drove better cars than I did. <laughs> but anyway, the interest came from uh, um, going through Catholic school, having actually a good model, role model of a priest in the midst of all this clergy sexual abuse crisis, uh, I was fortunate to have role models that uh, exemplified the highest levels of uh, clerical uh, life. And um, my uncles, my uncle and great uncle, and then this other priest, and they they were influential in having me think about the priesthood. Now, we know decisions finally are not made till later in life, ultimately, and it's when I was 26 that I was ordained. 
But in those days, and I'm talking the pre-Vatican II days, mm. you needed languages uh, to survive in the Catholic uh, ministry. So Latin was uh, primal, uh, primary. So uh, it was six hours a week for six years of Latin required. Mm. And you had to be able to celebrate Mass and know what you were saying, you know. So uh, I started early in high school, like a uh, prep seminary. And it was at the Josephinum Seminary, Columbus, Ohio, which was um, founded by a German who helped send German-speaking priests to German immigrants. So the other language we started was German. So I studied German five years, four years, five hours a week. So the language thing was big, and that was started early. Prior to my time in high school also, the uh, language of uh, Greek was brought in. Mm -hmm. uh, they found it was a little bit too much for high school students to have three languages, so they pushed that back a few years. But anyway, that, that was my introduction to seminary life, and eventually I was ordained in 1970 as a priest. That was six, 12 years in the seminary, 10 of which were in the 60s. Mm. So, uh, like yourself, uh, much of my experience was uh, tempering uh, the understanding of faith in the midst of the sexual revolution, uh, the uh, uh, Woodstock era. I guess Woodstock is celebrating its, what is it, 50th anniversary coming up. So that impacted the Catholic Church, uh, the, the whole society. And we all had to deal with trying to reorient ourselves somewhat in the right directions in the midst of that. Uh, so I, I, I had uh, wonderful assignments as a priest early on, parish ministry in Jacksonville Beach, Florida, teaching at a Catholic high school, and then went off for graduate studies after that in Rome. Now, you mentioned the 60s. Um, I was also a college student and uh, in, the, in the 60s. I, I graduated from high school in 68, so... In the late 60s, early 70s, I was in school. Uh, something else was happening in the world of Catholicism in the 60s, and that was the Second Vatican Council. Could you say a little bit about that and how it may have uh, influenced you? So all through my seminary days in college, I graduated from high school in 62. So I was in college in the years 62 to 5 were the years of the Second Vatican Council. So all those, we would get the council documents, and they would be... Uh, we would be informed of them and then told the consequences of them. So early on, the religious freedom document and the liturgy document. And that, of course, liturgy document affected what was going to happen to me when I was ordained a priest. By that time, everything was in English. My first Mass was the totally new English uh, liturgy, which has succeeded on to the present time. So I never had the Latin. I had the opportunities. I celebrate it for the uh, we have a, tr a Trinitine masses in our diocese, but um, I do the confirmations in three different areas. So, well, two mainly in the, the Latin way, but all my priesthood has been this, uh, affected by that. So uh, the other thrust is uh, ecumenical relations, which has, uh, has brought us together, dialoguing in those areas where we can and where we should, my little document that we're working uh, on right now in preparation for Eucharistic Congress called Form Sent talks about the thrust that that has made in uh, ecumenical and interfaith relations, which you have been very much involved in, a fruit of the Second Vatican Council. Yes. You know, the great uh, document on religious freedom, uh, Dignitatis Humanae, which came out of Vatican II, 
that's one of the places I think where Catholics and Baptists can come together because religious liberty, religious freedom is maybe the primary distinctive of the Baptist tradition, at least for which we're best known. And it seems that with Vatican II, there is a coming together, if not identical, at least congruent visions of religious freedom. Yes, and I think right now uh, in the United States, religious freedom is a major issue and worldwide uh, in terms of dealing with other countries where religious freedom is not in place. And as a Catholic community, we, we do admit our, our failures and sins of the past in not living a respecting um, that dimension of faith, which was highlighted at the Second Vatican Council. Now, I want to talk about this pastoral letter you've been so involved in, and it's very important in the context of the present moment. But before we do that, I have another question. Um, a lot of Baptists, a lot of evangelical Protestants have a view of Catholicism that it's unbiblical. And even some think that Catholics are not allowed to read the Bible. The Bible is kept from Catholics. Whatever might have been the case in the past, that's certainly not true today. Could you say a little bit about the Bible and how important it is for Catholic theology and for Catholic practice? Well, following the Second Vatican Council, uh, many priests were sent to do biblical studies in Rome and Jerusalem. Bishop Saratelli was one of them. So I think he has been uh, a good dialogue partner with yeah. you because he has a, a very good knowledge of both the Old and the New Testament. So uh, that is uh, that has been a fruit of that the, the research and study. Uh, the uh, Raymond Brown, I think, is respected by theologians and scripture scholars of all backgrounds and denominations. Uh, taught at Yale, so I think we're in the the area now where we can dialogue in a, a professional way with one another, and the fruits of that have been many. I, I think the other side. Um, I do want to say that even as as a, a young student in the seminary, we were taught to meditate on the scriptures. And some of the things I was taught by my spiritual director, a Jesuit priest, I still use. How to um, work into reading the scriptures in a contemplative way so that it's it's not seen just as a book to with you know historical facts, but the facts that apply to me today. How do we do that? And how do we balance the history and the historical? Uh, elements, uh, the historical critical method, with also the personal application and faith. I have to say I learned some of that early on that has helped me read the scriptures as the way they were meant to be read. Yeah. You know, I'm a part of a group called Evangelicals and Catholics Together. It's an ecumenical uh, dialogue that's been going on now for over 20 years. And that's been kind of our strategy um, to read the scriptures together. Uh, whatever topic we're exploring, we've we've put, published a number of different papers on theological topics, on issues of public life. Uh, but our our method is to come together around the scriptures. What what does the Bible say about this? How do we understand it? How do we read it? Uh, and how is our own understanding enlightened and even transformed by a mutual coherence in the Word of God? I think that's a wonderful way to go forward. And, and just briefly, this past um, Holy Week, as I read the scriptures of Holy Week, and we we go through on Palm Sunday and Good Friday in a special way the the narrative of the Passion. To me, the 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 figure that stood out strongly was Judas Iscariot, and the tragedy of of that man's life—a man that was around Jesus—and I. I 
there's different approaches to 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 Judas by the different the, the synoptics and John. Uh, John's pretty hard on on Judas uh, for whatever reason. He was he was there when, of course, uh, Judas betrayed him in the garden. But um, he's the only one that refers to him as the traitor, mm. the betrayer. And I think they they all suggest that everything, every possibility was held out to Judas for conversion by Jesus. It had to be the greatest tragedy of Holy Week. But I, as I read the scriptures this year, Judas popped out at me more. So mm-hmm. I have been reflecting on how that can happen to even people who are around Jesus and they don't really become his disciples. They, they go to Mass every Sunday. They hear the message but they don't take it to heart. And there's so many of us, perhaps, that fall in that category. We could also um, suffer the loss of that gift mm. that Jesus has given us of faith. Uh, that's a good way to uh, introduce this document that you've been uh, so involved in bringing together, Called, Formed, Sent, Missionary Discipleship and Its Consequences for Ministry. Say a little bit about this document and what it's intended to do. Dr. George, we celebrate 50 years as a diocese of Birmingham this coming June, the end of June 28th and 29th at the BJJC. We hope the Baptist community would be uh, free to attend any of the sessions with uh, good speakers that will be there. The papal nuncio of the United States will be present and speaking in English and Spanish and giving the homily at the end of the Saturday Mass, Saturday Vigil Mass. But the document is a preparatory document to that. And um, it's helping us um, as a Catholic community of northern Alabama reflect on <clears throat> missionary discipleship. And uh, the document is the fruit of Pope Francis's Evangelii Gaudium uh, pastoral exhortation, apostolic exhortation, uh, the joy of the gospel. And he gets at basically the importance of everyone by baptism, we, he says, being a missionary disciple. He defines <clears throat> disciple as one who has a deep personal encounter with Jesus uh, that enables him to experience him or her to experience the love and forgiveness of Jesus. And there's where I think uh, Judas Iscariot, unfortunately, missed the point. The encounter he had was not deep or personal and not a sense of forgiveness. The Lord would have held forgiveness to him, too for that betrayal, but he could not sense God could love us that much. So that discipleship, and then also missionary, we're called to be missionaries. And here's where we Catholics, I think, as a community, need to do a lot of homework. Uh, The Pope says, first of all, to be a good missionary, you have to be a good disciple. And then a disciple is one who experiences another person as neighbor. And I think we can think of the Good Samaritan parable as a definition of what neighbor is doesn't even have to be somebody who's in your own faith community. Uh, Jesus is saying the neighbor is somebody who uh, actually loves and cares for you. And um, that is something that transcends religious denominations. One of the things that we share in common, Bishop, is an interest in St. Francis of Assisi. I wonder if you would make comment about Francis. And, you know, I guess as a student, I began to read Francis and was drawn to him as a figure. And over the years, have had a number of opportunities to visit Assisi, his hometown, and actually to stay with a group of sisters, the Bridgetine sisters, that you also have stayed with and are held in high esteem by them. The last time I was there, they said, you're from Birmingham, Alabama. 
do you know Bishop Robert Baker? Yes, he's a friend of mine, and so they that I got royal treatment because I, uh, so. I was acquainted with you. Talk about Francis and the Franciscan charism in the church. I hope the sisters gave you some of their great pasta. There, it was it's, wonderful. It, it, you could eat it all day. They're great cooks. Um, I, when I was a student in Rome in seventy-two to five, and then back for a stint in seventy-seven, I would go there often. I probably stayed with those sisters thirty-five times, and um, the lure of Assisi. The message of Assisi, of, of St. Francis, who is, I think, every everybody's saint, uh, whatever Christian background a person is, and even non-Christians uh, find him uh, a model of Christianity. So um, I'm drawn to him as you are, as somebody who represents what the higher standards of Christianity. Uh, I'm wearing uh, the cross of San Damiano, mm-hmm. which is the pectoral cross, I have that I use most often, and I happen to buy it in a CC. So uh, I too have a special um, devotion to him, and hopefully, Dr. George, sometime in our retirement, we might rendezvous there for some good uh, Italian pasta there with the Brigitine. Wouldn't nuts. that be wonderful? You know, one of my favorite places to go in a CC, not only the, with the, the wonderful sisters, uh, but also uh, the Mount Subasio, which was uh, a place they call a carchery where Francis and the early Franciscans would meet to pray and sometimes struggle with with demonic forces. It was very vigorous, rigorous, but it was a time of clarification and drawing closer to Christ. Beautiful mountainside overlooking the (coughs) Valley of Spoleto below. I went up there once. I have to tell you a little humorous story. We had a cab driver and a rather overweight friend was with me. And, of course, you know, if you go into the carchery, uh, you've you got to be uh, very slim to be able to crawl under and through where Francis uh, lived. It's all stone, and it's all in stone. It's carved out. And so this rather heavyset uh, gentleman was getting out of the cab, and the cab driver uh, spoke Italian. Uh, I understood it, but the other man didn't. But he just did a little gesture like, no way are you going to make it through the car tray. <laughs> you better. So he, 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 he kind of hung back. Uh, while we went on through. But, uh, yeah, it's a little tight squeeze. And you can imagine what Francis must have had to endure. But Francis used as uh, a pillow a a stone So when he was there. And obviously it was uh, a lot of uh, asceticism that went on there. Sure. Well, uh, let's talk just a little bit about some of the projects we've done together. I think maybe the first one was when we co-hosted a visit from our friend, the great Chuck Colson. The late Chuck Colson came to Birmingham, and the diocese and Beeson Divinity School were involved in sponsoring that. He spoke to a large group. Uh, We've had uh, Scott Hahn, another Catholic biblical scholar, come together. And then uh, more recently, uh, a major conference Black and White in America, How Deep the Divide, which really was your initiative. And we came alongside you and helped us to sponsor that along with others. Racial reconciliation seems to me, if you live in Birmingham, if you're in Alabama, uh, if you're a Christian, it's something you just can't ignore. We have a stewardship of geography. And that conference was a very important coming together of white and black, Catholic and evangelical Protestants to think together about that very difficult and continually pressing issue for all of us. Why is that such an important thing for you? Well, first of all, I want to commend 
Beeson Divinity School on hosting it. Um, when we conceived the idea of it, originally we felt an academic setting would be the ideal, a religious academic setting better, so that the religious community of Birmingham could be a vital part of it. Um, the mayor at the time also wanted to be part of that, so he helped us as well get the political representatives there, and you knew them well, and it made sure that that, that sector was represented. Birmingham is ground zero for the civil rights movement. Historically, many things happened here with Martin Luther King and others that got attention from the world and still do. So I think it is important that we as religious leaders had a um, least reflection that did go out uh, and indicated progress in the discussion. Progress in the sense that we were listening to one another and listening to the black community, and we are, we are still carrying on listening sessions in the aftermath of that um, because we did determine that the divide is deep uh, and uh, the emotional feelings are raw yet. Uh, you yourself said, Dr. George, that one of our community members ind indicated this could not have been done 40 years earlier, that, that session, because we did allow things to surface, and we were a little concerned about the possibility of some problems that could develop from the dialogue that happened. Mm -hmm. uh, fortunately, everything was uh, well-contained and well-organized by your people here. So I commend you, and I think the listening needs to go on mm -hmm. on both sides. Um, into the future, you and I will be stepping down from leadership positions, but our listeners, people from all faith backgrounds, need to carry that listening possibility open, and, and then allow one another to speak to the issues. I think we also need to be committed in our churches to uh, education in the, the poor areas and poor communities uh, around Birmingham areas and, and large cities. Uh, I think education is a gift from the churches and where there are religious schools existing that can give scholarships and help is very important. So education was one other area that we saw a need for. Mm -hmm. But um, I thank you for that, for hosting it here. It was a, a very, very important event. I also want to just commend uh, the Baptist community for leadership in your churches uh, around Alabama and in the world. Here in Alabama, the Baptists are at the forefront of concern for life. and. Uh, mm -hmm. Uh, Chuck Colson brought in those concerns. Uh, you and I have shared that concern for the unborn. Yes. The Baptist community is the strongest faith community in leading the charge for the cause of life in Alabama. Mm -hmm. And I commend the ministers who have helped lead to the point where Alabama is trying now in its legislature to um, block abortions in the state. Obviously, these things will go to the Supreme Court, but Alabamians should be proud and the Baptist community, and to a certain extent the Catholic community and others who have helped form the minds and the hearts of people on this issue. I commend you. Thank you, Bishop. And, you know, we, we've talked just now about these two major issues in our society, the question of racism and also the question of the sanctity of life, abortion, uh, the evil of abortion that goes on in almost unrestricted forms. Um, these are deep matters, and even though they may have different politics in some people's mind, it seems to me that morally they're very close to being the same issue and that if we're concerned about one, we should also be concerned about the other. Exactly. Uh, 
the life issues are a continuum and uh, uh, they go across the board. I think these issues are right now two of the pivotal and most important ones. But may I throw out one other that's a little uh, a little hot button issue and that's capital punishment. And I have myself served as a priest, uh, as a chaplain to Catholics on death row when I was a priest in Florida. Pope John Paul II had said, while in the past the Catholic Church did uh, not take a strong uh, position of opposition to capital punishment because it invoked it itself in the past, now he said we should move away from that. And he, he puts it in the continuum of the life issues, the respect for human life. So I just throw that out for conversation. I know it's a hot button issue here in Alabama, and politically it's uh, one that's not gone too far, but we, we as Catholics still uh, talk about that too. And I have witnessed uh, myself two executions. I've been with inmates, and I've seen them face it. And the complication of uh, the death penalty is that you know the time and the moment of your death, that God frees the rest of us from that particular uh, pressure. Thank you for your conviction about that and your conscience speaking out on it. Uh, it's also a matter related to life and the gift of life that God gives to us. Uh, Bishop, we're almost at the end of our time. I wonder, would you be willing to say a prayer for us, uh, for the diocese, for Beeson Divinity School, for the future that God has for us? And how about a prayer for Dr. Timothy George, who has uh, influenced the lives of thousands of people, many thousands through the uh, ministers he's formed and those he's educated. So I'll start right there. Thank you. God, our loving Father, we thank you for the gift of Dr. Timothy George, uh, who is the founder and dean of Beeson Divinity School, has uh, left his mark, a great legacy here uh, in Birmingham, but throughout the country and the world. Uh, may you bless him as he moves into a, a new area of uh, ministry and service, uh, carrying on his research and uh, his great um, faith in action by the teaching of ministry and profession. May you bless him. May you bless all in the Beeson Divinity School who works so closely with the Catholic uh, Household of Faith here in Birmingham and my own uh, brother clergy who have benefited from programs that have been sponsored here. Uh, may you bless Samford Divinity School, Samford University, its president and all its faculty members, uh, its great football team that has to have, to have a couple Catholics playing on the team, and that did pretty well the last few years. And we, we acknowledge the great strides that have happened, Lord, because of the dialogue that's gone on, chiefly led by Dr. Timothy George, May you bless him, his dear family, his wife who's here today, and uh, all who are part of the wider family of this great divinity school. We make our prayer gratefully and joyfully in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.